Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. What does it mean for Christ to be Lord? A few years ago, there was a businessman who paid for uh, billboards to be put all over Birmingham that said, Jesus is Lord. And oftentimes I wondered if the average person who drove through down the freeway on 65 or 20 understood what the phrase meant. Do we understand what the phrase means? Or is it a trite saying that something we've heard all our lives is a religious expression, but we haven't really know what it means? The text today will be, we'll just be flying through a little bit for the uh, readings today. That's the theme that's running through the readings today. Is that Christ is Lord. You know you have to be a pretty, uh, you can't be just a, a typical boring theologian sitting in your office writing books uh, to get a comic book made of your life. Or as they would say, a graphic novel. And in this case, a graphic biography. This one, uh, this is about the life of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian. You can see the artwork is very good. It won an award for 2008 gold medal award for outstanding illustrations. Okay. Bonhoeffer's life is compelling, and that's why it's so compelling that it would make a comic book. But what makes it compelling is that he decided that Christ would be Lord over his life and the life of the church in Germany while Adolf Hitler was being raised to power as Chancellor of Nazi Germany. So we're looking 32 in the 30s, okay? 32 especially will be a pivotal time where Hitler is actually elected to be Chancellor. He didn't take over Germany in one sense. He was elected, okay? And yet people could see there's a problem. And one of the first things that Hitler did was to put his own bishop over the German Lutheran Church. And he called it the German church. And so Hitler became Lord of the church. And if I wish I had brought it, I can bring it another time. I have a pictorial history of this time period. It's called a Bonhoeffer Life in Pictures. And you can see a picture of an altar, but instead of a lamb there is the Nazi colors and the Nazi swastika over the altar. Hitler and other pastors felt this had gone too far. They formed an illegal church in the eyes of the Nazis called the Confessing Church. Okay? And it means they were confessing Christ as Lord. And they wrote a document. Now, Bonhoeffer was out of the country at the time, but he had influenced Karl Barth as the leading writer of this. You may have heard him as a theologian. Barth and Bonhoeffer were friends. And Bonhoeffer was thrilled with this document. And I want you to listen carefully to what they're saying and listen to the context. You've got Nazi Gestapo brown shirts walking the streets. You've got German Nazis taking over the church. You've got Hitler demanding loyalty and for you to make the Heil Hitler sign that he is the supreme Lord of Germany and Lord over the church. Okay. The declaration the, the confessing church made, the believing uh, pastors and theologians made, was they said the source of all revelation is only the word of God, Jesus Christ. 
Any other possible sources, earthly powers, for example, will not be accepted. So in other words, Jesus Christ is Lord over the church. We don't accept human governments to be Lord. To make it explicitly clear in the second article, they say Jesus is the only Lord of all aspects of personal life. There should be no other authority. When you make a statement like that, as a theologian like that, and as a pastor, you sign it like that, and you've got a ruler like Hitler, you're making a bold declaration. You're putting your life on the line for the Lordship of Christ. The message and order of the church should not be influenced by current political convictions. So in other words, what's going on with Nazism should not be influencing what's going on in the church. Number four, article four, there's five articles. The church should not be ruled by a leader. Now, leader in German is Führer. The church should not be ruled by a Führer. There is no hierarchy in the church. There is no civil authorities should be leading it in one single person. The state should not fulfill the task of the church and vice versa. And the state and the church are both limited in their business. Separate spheres, separate authorities. Therefore, this Barman Declaration rejects the subordination of the church to the state and the subordination of the word and the spirit to the church. I want you to see how crucial the phrase Jesus is Lord is and what a difference it can make in a society when you declare it. I can go out to Joe, Parker, uh, Joe Tucker Park right now yell across the lake, Jesus is Lord, and there be, won't be any consequences. There may be a few turned heads. Might be a couple atheists out there who wag their heads no, but that's it. But if I go out to China, stand in Tiananmen Square in front of the great Communist Party building and shout, Jesus is Lord, I'll be arrested within three minutes. Because for the Chinese government, they are Lord over everyone's life. And they demand ultimate allegiance. So it costs in some cultures for Jesus to be Lord. So we need to take the seriousness of the phrase again. Remind ourselves and stir it up in our hearts again that it's not just a cliche. But it's a phrase that captures the heart and demands our full devotion. Now Webster's Dictionary who is, used to be reliable, but as of Thursday, uh, we've discovered that they will change their definitions dictated by a politician. I don't know if any of y'all saw this exchange between the Hawaiian sen senator and Amy Coney Barrett. She was debating Amy Coney Barrett, saying she used the word sexual preference, which implies choice. And she demanded that she use the word sexual orientation, which implies that you're born this way. And she told Amy Coney Barrett that the only proper definition use of the word is sexual orientation. That very moment, Webster's changed their dictionary definition of sexual preference to be a um, slang word or a, or a racist type term not to be used. You can, I can show it to you. It's, you can see the definition one minute and see the definition change a minute or two later. 
just because a Hawaiian senator felt that this was presidential and sexist and homophobic. Yet we have, you know, they have video of all these Democratic politicians just within the last few weeks and days using the word sexual preference. Okay. But that's how controlling our culture is becoming over our language and the words that we use and becoming so politically correct in this whole council culture. And as we declare Christ as Lord, we're saying, now the definition is power and authority over others. Now we automatically as Americans, I'm listening to a book on the American Revolution right now, we automatically assume as a result of the revolution and the things with King George that power and authority over others is a bad thing as Americans. But Jesus is power and authority over the whole world. He is creator, and that's a good thing. It's the Greek word kurios. And that was a radical thing, which we're going to see in a minute. Because Caesar had a little coin that circulated through the realm. And on that little coin in Latin, it said Caesar is kurios and savior. So who is it? We'll look at that what's going on in Matthew in just a minute with that expression. So when we confess and we say in the terms of Romans 5, uh, 10.6, I'm sorry, Romans 10.6, when a person confesses that Jesus is Lord, they are confessing that Jesus has a power and authority over their lives, over their hearts, and over their choices. So Bonhoeffer was an unusual German theologian, and there were others like Niemöller and others who realized that if Christ is Lord over their lives in Nazi Germany, it means making choices. It means protecting Jews. It means forming a new church. It means being harassed by the Gestapo. And for some confessing churches, it means they are getting, they, what they did is they would find out who they were, spy on them, draft them into the army, and then send them to the Russian front with hardly no training hoping they would get killed. Lordship makes choices, and I'm going to make choices based on Christ and who Christ is for me. And I'm going to stand for him no matter what it costs. So our relationship to Jesus is one of submission, one of surrender, one that we're willing to obey his voice and his word no matter the cost. I know that, uh, let's turn to Romans 10, 6 real quick, because it's a real important verse. I'm sorry, 10, 9. I got it inverted in my mind. 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, some people have looked at that little phrasing and assumed just because they say it, they're saved. It's just a, a, a magical word, a magical phrase that if you just say it, then you'll get to go to heaven. But what Paul's not just talking about a transaction here. He's talking about a change of heart, a surrendered life. A person who's willing to follow Christ no matter where he goes. As we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, they're willing to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so you confess in your mouth that he's Lord of your life and you're submitted to him and he has the ultimate priority over everything. And you believe in your heart and you believe that he was resurrected. And that's not an easy thing to believe. 
Why? Because you've never seen it before. Never seen person raised from the dead and continue to live forever. But you believe it in your heart because you've experienced the living Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has broken you, uh, broken your chains and set you free. So if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you, it's not a magical formula. It's a submitting of your life to Christ. You're not kidding yourself. You know this walk with Christ might cost you your life. So let's look at a couple of things. Let's look at uh, Isaiah, the Isaiah passage today. I want to look at one main verse. Keep in mind that to confess Christ as Lord, to confess God as Lord, as supreme as the only one, is a pledge that you're saying you're going to be, your desire, your heart's desire is to perfectly obey him in all that you do. Now, we recognize that in our lives, there are times where we fail. We get scared. We get prideful. We get determined we want our own way. But what you, you've dedicated in your heart for him to be Lord, and you're being sensitive to his Holy Spirit as he can, convinces you and convicts you of times when you've allowed your life and your desires to go first. So lordship, to confess him as Lord, is a pledge of commitment that you're going to cultivate a life of submission to Christ and you're going to follow him wherever he goes. Now, in Isaiah, the Israelites were not confessing Christ as Lord and they were not uh, following the Lord and they were in uh, bondage to the Babylonians. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, in our Old Testament reading, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So part of him being Lord of our life is recognizing he's sovereign and he's providential over our uh, the things that he's allowed to happen in our lives, both good and bad, and we trust him in the midst of those circumstances. We're in a culture that, that believes that our lives should be easy, and if, God, if, if a bad circumstance comes our way, then we're mad at God. When all cultures before us uh, and cultures in the third world always understood that life is hard, life is tragic, life is difficult, because we live in a fallen world. And the Lord says, trust me, I am your Lord. There is no other. I am the one in the midst of the pain and the disappointment. I'm in control. I do these things. Trust me in the midst of them. So part one, part of what it means for Christ to be Lord is to trust him with your circumstances and trust him with uh, your trials and tribulations. To trust him that he's doing what's best for you. To trust him that he loves you. You're trusting that he's cultivating a more intimate relationship with you. To trust him in all things. Now turn with me to the psalm reading for today. Actually, I have to commend the lectionary people, whoever they are. They did a good job of picking out lessons that go together really well. 
Now in Psalm 96, 5, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Splendor and majesty before him, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Notice that first, first verse. For all the gods of the nations are idols. The Bible's recognizing that foreign and pagan nations had gods. The Bible also recognized, we know from Corinthians in Numbers, that there were demonic forces behind those gods. So those spiritual beings were very real. We tend to scientific people and we write off any kind of supernatural force or any kind of thing where they were making little calves. And we think, oh, how dumb, how ignorant, how ancient. But these calves and these idols, these Mardukes and these Baals had power because it's a demonic power behind them. And the Lord said, he is above them. He created the heavens. He's the one who we owe worship and adoration. These gods of the nations are idols. Now, with the exception of a few weird people in our culture, nobody making golden calves that I've noticed lately, you know, except something, maybe some strange reference on Drudge Report to some strange group in the hills up in Idaho or something. Okay. But we all have idols. And idols can come up within our hearts. Idols are something or someone besides Jesus Christ that we feel like we must have to be happy and fulfilled. Let me say that again. Idols are something or someone besides Jesus Christ that we think we must have to be happy and fulfilled. It could be money. I ran to an old friend of mine that I worked with at... Um, at the store, and then he was over here at this region's, and then uh, he's somewhere else now. And all he talked about to me as we were greeting each other, hadn't seen each other in a little while, was how much money he was making with his new job. His family is in shatters, but he's making tons of money. There's sexual addictions. There's a desire for power. We see it, in, especially in politicians, but that power can be a, a silly thing where you undermine a friend to try to get their position so you could be supervisor at your store. Or you can be the manager at your, at your grocery. We can do, it's not even running for president. We can have that as an idol in our heart. There's nothing wrong with desiring to grow. There's nothing wrong with desiring to advance in a company. But it can become an idol of the heart. Fame, wanting our name known. Success in the eyes of the world. So when we run into old friends at a high school reunion, we can flout what all we've accomplished. So we all have, can have idols and we can all even say we're Christians, and yet still there's something in our heart that we feel like we have to have besides Jesus for us to be happy and fulfilled. The flesh, that our fallenness, our flesh, is, uh, is that which is our human body, and it turns basic needs and elementary desires into addictions, bondages, and cravings, and fixations in order to meet these idolatrous needs. 
So for Christ to be Lord in our life, we're surrendering all that to Him. We're saying, Lord, yes, I do need money to live, but Lord, I'm not going to live for money. I'm not going to live for sexual gratification. I'm not going to live. I'm going to live for you. If I get promoted, great. If I don't, I'll be happy. I'll be great. I don't need fame. It just leads to disaster. Need success in a worldly sense? No, I just need to hear the words good and well done, good and faithful servant on the last day. So part of Christ's lordship is that he would, we would put aside the gods of our hearts, the idols of our hearts, and make him completely Lord. So there's no other in our life, but number one, there's, from Isaiah, there's no one in our life supreme, but God, from uh, uh, Psalm 96, we're putting away all our idols or anything that would capture our hearts that would keep him from being Lord. Now turn with me to the uh, New Testament reading. First Thessalonians. This is a great description by um, Paul of what it, a life looks like when they're being transformed by the Holy Spirit and they're coming to Christ and meeting him face to face. I noticed this week in the Gospel Coalition, they have a reading plan and someone had done an article on this chapter and I thought it was really well done. And so if you want to go deeper, there's an article there on the Gospel Coalition breaking down this little section for you. I'm just going to skip down to verse 4, chapter 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. Notice when they're preaching the gospel, he didn't just persuade them with preaching, though he did preach. But that preaching had effect because it was powerful. It was anointed. Okay? Some of us are studying together on Wednesday nights, and anyone's welcome about how to preach and teach more effectively. There's one of the things. Persuade, use good words, be prepared, but also be anointed. Have an intimate relationship with the Lord. The Lord is honoring your words. You know how we lived among you for your sake. End of verse 5. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy and given by the Holy Spirit. So one of the signs of a converted, uh, a truly converted believer, someone who's made Christ as Lord, is there's a joy, there's a willingness to walk through suffering. And it's so much so that it was severe suffering. They didn't give up on the Lord, even though they were being rejected by the world. And they became imitators of the Lord, trying to reflect in their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit what his life looked like. You welcome the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia, Acadia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only from Macedonia, Acadia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. They became a witness. This little church. My New Testament professor at Beeson said he thought this church with 75 people. I can never forget the, the student raising his hand and says, how big was this church? And you could tell by the look on their face they were expecting him to say thousands. Mega church. And, the, and, and Dr. Thielman said, 50, no, probably 75. And I could just watch his face fall. 
Because to him, success was numbers. But this little church of 50 to 75, their witness and the fact that they've come to Christ and Christ is their Lord of their life, their testimony is going out through that whole part of Greece, that northern part of Greece. What is called Macedonia today is still the, the Macedonia, same section of the world that it was called in the time of Paul. And their testimony is ringing out. And it's ringing out through Greece. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So for Christ to be Lord of your life, you're surrendering these idols that we've talked about, these things in your life you say you have to have to be happy, but will never provide fulfillment, and you're yielding them at his feet, and you're yielding, and you're yielding your life to make him Lord. And now verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So their hearts, because they have yielded their hearts to Christ, they have set aside their idols and made Christ as Lord. They'll be ready for Christ at the second coming. Now let's turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, the famous paying taxes to Caesar. Now, what does this have to do with lordship? I've already kind of hinted at it before. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Why would the Pharisees want to do that? What kind of heart is going on? They're Jewish nationalists. They're just like American reporters. Ask a question. We got you. You didn't say it right. You didn't answer right. We'll make a viral video. We'll put it on Twitter. You didn't say it the right way. We got you. We see what kind of person you really are. Human nature hasn't changed. This is a gotcha question. But notice the Pharisees also bring with them the Herodians. Well, why would they do that? That's their bitter enemies. The Herodians are committed to Roman rule. They sold their lives out as Jews to Roman aristocracy. Pharisees and Herodians are bitter opponents. Jewish nationalists versus Roman loyalists. But they're wanting to put Jesus in a bind. They want the ultimate gotcha question. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and you teach the way of God. Watch out when people flatter you. Okay. Flattery in the first uh, century meant if you were flattered as a teacher, you had to answer. It was a cultural thing. If I flatter you and build you up, you've got to respond to the question. It's an insult for me not to. But you can see this flattery is insincere because the whole goal of this encounter is we got you. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, if I say, yes, it is, then the Pharisees are offended because I'm not a true Jewish nationalist. If I was a true Jewish nationalist, I would be trying to undermine the Roman Empire, and we shouldn't be supporting the Roman Empire. So I can't, uh, if I say, yes, pay the taxes to Caesar, ah, we got you. If I say, 
No, don't pay the taxes to Caesar. Then Herodians are offended because we should be honoring our authorities. And now we got you. It was a setup. Just like all these town halls are becoming setups, right? Did you find out the other night that the, one of the town halls, all the people who were asking questions were members of the Obama administration? We're always gotcha, setting people up. Okay? It hasn't changed. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing the evil intent, you hypocrites, why are you trying to play gotcha questions with me? Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him to Daenerys. He asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Pay the tax because you're earthly authority, but recognize God is Lord and give him your whole life. Caesar can play his game and he can rule the world if he wants to for the time being. But your ultimate allegiance goes to God. He's the creator and he, you owe him your whole life. It may sound on that coin, Caesar is both Lord and Savior. Let me tell you today, I am Lord and Savior. You can give to him, honor him. He's an earthly authority, but ultimately you honor God. This is a quite a radical statement. It throws the Herodians on their heels. It throws the Pharisees on their heels. It's putting everybody in their proper place. The Pharisees can't argue because he's saying can be committed to God. The Herodians can't argue because he's saying honor authority because God has set up authorities, figures. When they heard this, verse 22, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So Christ is Lord of our heart. There'll be nobody beside him in Isaiah. If we have idols in our hearts or things we're clinging to, we need to rid ourselves of those. Part of being a Christian means you're turning from idols and you're giving your life to God. And this Christ who is Lord, you're raising your hands to him and you're giving him your due, his due glory over politics, over governments, over leaders, over anything. He is your Lord. Part of our society, as our society has moved away further and further from a belief in God and a commitment to God, it's making politics God. It's using religious phrasing to fill in that hole. And it's making politics and declaring politics to be Lord. As a time as no other in American history, it's important for us, not only in our personal spiritual life to declare Christ as Lord, but also in our political and governmental life. Everything we do, every choice we make, declares Christ, should be to declare Christ as Lord. Turn me through real quick to um, Acts 2.36, and we'll close with this verse. Acts 2.36 Peter is preaching 
after the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching in power, and he's, uh, they have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he's preaching to the crowd because they wanted an explanation of what's going on. He says in verse 36, Acts 2, 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Messiah. Both Lord and Savior. There has been a tendency in some of our preaching in the way we do altar calls in many of our churches that we people will come to Christ as Savior. They'll want the good stuff. They want to be right with God. They want to go to heaven. They want blessing. But they don't want Christ to be Lord of their life. There's a th- famous theologian who just passed away, James uh, J.I. Packer. And Father Scott and I had a chance to meet him a few years ago at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. There's a controversy or whether Christ had to be Lord of your life for you to be saved. Back in the early 90s, it was called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. That's hard to believe, I know. But there was a controversy. There were theologians and people teaching he didn't have to be Lord for you to be saved. And we were talking to J.I. Packer about that because a lot of books had come out and he had stood on the Lord and Savior side. And he said, here's just the verse he mentioned. You can't have half of Jesus was his words. You can't have just the Christ half. You got to have the Lord half too. It's a whole Jesus. He's both Lord and Savior. He's everything. So keep that in mind. Remember that Christ is Lord is not just a trite phrase. It's a phrase that calls us all. Amy Carmichael, the great deeper life teacher who was the... um, uh, caretaker of Indian orphans, Indian orphan girls who would often be exploited by, she would rescue girls from Hindu temples who were being used and violated. And she had a, a Donavur fellowship there where she rescued these young ladies. And it was intense spiritual warfare. And she, I'll close with this. She says, often his call, Jesus' call is to follow in paths we would not have chosen. Here's an Irish, redhead Irish girl has moved to India, rescuing girls, being under all manner of spiritual warfare. Sometimes to follow Christ is not always the path you would choose. But if the truth be said, anywhere, Lord, he takes us at our word and orders our goings, and he puts a new song in our mouths and even a thanksgiving unto God. There's a wonderful joy to be had for knowing that we are not in the way of our own choice. When Christ is Lord of your life and he begins to lead you, sometimes he'll lead you in paths you would not go. But if when you follow, there's a new joy in your heart, there's a new song of salvation, there's a new thanksgiving that comes forth from your life of knowing you're fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus. Let Christ be Lord of your life. You'll never find anything more fulfilling nor more satisfying than an intense, intimate relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are Lord. And that, Lord, if there's any idols within our hearts that we look to, that we think will bring us happiness and satisfaction, Lord, cause us to repent.
And Lord, help us to follow in your footsteps and find the joy of the Lord in obedience to you. Make the phrase, Christ is Lord, fresh within our hearts, we pray today. In Jesus' blessed name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.